Our title for this sermon is A Riot and a Resurrected Church, 1 Thessalonians 1.1. 1, 1. Uh, 1 Thessalonians is after the book of Colossians, and it's before 1 Timothy, if you're scanning through the New Testament. Uh, if you don't have a Bible, we have pew Bibles under your chairs, and we'd love to give that as a gift to you if you don't own one. 1 Thessalonians. Uh, today we're going to be kicking off our series through the whole book of 1 Thessalonians. Many of you might be asking, what happened to Genesis? Well, don't worry. Um, if you remember, the plan is for us to make our way through the whole book of Genesis, but over a couple of years, uh, with a lot of New Testament sprinkled in. So we made it through Genesis chapters 1 through 3, and now we're going to stop and do 1 Thessalonians, and then we'll pick back up and go from Genesis 4 to Genesis 11, and then another New Testament book, so on and so forth, over a couple of years. So today, we begin 1 Thessalonians. Have you ever been at a party or a gathering of some sort, and you walk up on a conversation, but they're already in the middle of it? Now, unless you somehow happen to already know the context, it's easy to be lost and to miss out on exactly what's being said. In some ways, the book of 1 Thessalonians is like that. We're walking in on a conversation, a whole relationship to be exact, that was already going. There's a whole context we need to understand to really hop into the conversation. And that's exactly what we're meant to do, by the way. Uh, we're not meant to read 1 Thessalonians, or any Bible book for that matter. We're not meant to read it simply in an academic way, as if we're just impassionately reading someone else's mail. We're meant to read it, yes, first as a letter to them, but then we're quickly meant to enter that conversation. What did it mean to them? Then, what does it mean for us? And I think as we go, you'll see that this letter is very relevant to us in Santa Cruz County in 2023. So, what's the context for this conversation that we're stepping into this morning? Let's start by reading our actual text for today, and then we're going to rewind the tape a little bit. So, 1 Thessalonians 1, verse 1. This is the word of the Lord. Paul... Silvanus and Timothy, to the church of the Thessalonians, in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, grace to you and peace. What I want us to see from the very beginning is that this letter isn't written in a vacuum. It's written by real people to real people. So, who are we dealing with? First, Paul. The Apostle Paul, the one who was sovereignly pursued and saved by Jesus himself on the road to Damascus. Second, Silvanus, which is the Latin name for Silas, Paul's missionary travel companion. Third, Timothy, one of Paul's many disciples who he raised up to make other disciples and plant churches. So, why are these three writing a letter to a church in Thessalonica? To understand that, we have to go back to the book of Acts. 
where we're going to be spending the bulk of our time today. Okay, so back to Paul. Prior to being renamed Paul, this man's name was Saul. He was at the top of the totem pole when it came to being Jewish. He had the pedigree, the education, and the authority. He was so zealous that he was actually imprisoning and even killing Christians for their faith in Jesus. He didn't grow up in a Christian home or the church. But in Acts chapter 9, we see Jesus do something amazing. If you want to open your book to the book or your Bibles to the book of Acts, we're going to be doing a flyover of a number of chapters of Acts real quick. Acts chapter 9, starting in verse 1, tells us this. Acts chapter 9, verse 1. Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues at Damascus, so that if he found any belonging to the way, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. Does this man look like he's seeking Jesus in any capacity? No. He's actively persecuting Jesus' people. He's doing the exact opposite of seeking Jesus. But praise God, Jesus is seeking him. Jesus shows up on that road and changes Saul's life forever. The gospel completely reorients Saul's life. Jesus reveals himself to Saul, changes his name to Paul, and calls him on mission, empowering him with the Holy Spirit. By the way, if you're here and you're a Christian, that's your story too. Romans chapter 3, verses 10 through 12. It says, as it is written, none is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. The truth is that if Jesus didn't seek us, none of us would have sought Jesus. But he does. He pursues us, saves us. And like Paul, he changes us. He calls us on mission. And he empowers us with the Holy Spirit. If you're Christian... That's your story. So what happens after that? Now, I'm going to fast forward a bit in the story. In Acts chapter 13, we learn that Paul is in Antioch. And during a worship service, probably just like this one, the Holy Spirit leads the church to send Paul and Barnabas on a mission trip to share the gospel, to make disciples, and to plant churches. They go. They do exactly what they set out to do. And in the midst of that, they experience a ton of persecution. But the gospel isn't stopped. Jesus continues to pursue and to save people. Elders or pastors are raised up. Churches are planted. In Acts chapter 15, there's a brief break in the action. These new churches are trying to figure out how Judaism and Christianity mesh. How do they go together? Does 
Does one have to become Jewish to become a Christian? That's the question they're asking. The leaders of the church come together at what's known as the Jerusalem Council in Acts 15. And they decide, no, a Gentile or a non-Jew, a Gentile is not required to keep the Jewish ceremonial or civil laws to become a Christian. So this council sends out some messengers just to let all of the churches know. Acts chapter 15, verse 22. Then it seemed good to the apostles and the elders with the whole church to choose men from among them and send them to Antioch with Paul and Barnabas. They sent Judas, called Barsabbas, and Silas, leading men among the brothers. There he is, Silas an early leader in the Christian church. Well, at the end of Acts 15, we read this. Acts 15, starting in verse 36. And after some days, Paul said to Barnabas, let us return and visit the brothers in every city where we proclaim the word of the Lord and see how they are. So they're going back to these churches that they've planted. Now Barnabas wanted to take with them John called Mark. But Paul thought best not to take with them one who had withdrawn from them in Pamphyla and had not gone with them to the work. And there arose a sharp disagreement so that they separated from each other. Barnabas took Mark with him and sailed away to Cyprus. But Paul chose Silas and departed, having been commended by the brothers to the grace of the Lord and having went through Syria and Cilicia, strengthening the churches. So now... Paul and Silas are on mission together. They're going around and strengthening the churches. Let's keep reading. Acts chapter 16, verses 1 through 5. Paul came also to Derbe and to Lystra. A disciple was there named Timothy, the son of a Jewish woman who was a believer. But his father was a Greek. He was well spoken of by the brothers at Lystra and Iconium. Paul wanted Timothy to accompany him, and he took him and circumcised him, because of the Jews who were in those places, for they all knew that his father was a Greek. As they went on their way through the cities, they delivered to them for observance the decisions that had been reached by the apostles and elders who were in Jerusalem. So the churches were strengthened in the faith, and they increased in numbers daily. So Paul and Silas, they pick up Timothy. He joins them in strengthening the churches. And their plan is to go visit all the churches that Paul planted on his first missionary journey. That's the plan. Until Acts 16, verse 6. Acts 16, verse 6 through 10. And they went through the region of Phrygia and Galatia, having been forbidden by the Holy Spirit to speak the word in Asia. And when they had come up to Mysia, they attempted to go into Bithynia. But the Spirit of Jesus did not allow them. So passing by Mysia, they went down to Troas. And a vision appeared to Paul in the night. A man of Macedonia was standing there urging him and saying, Come over to Macedonia and help us. And when Paul had seen the vision, immediately we sought to go on into Macedonia concluding that God had called us to preach the gospel to them. The Holy Spirit himself 
blocks Paul from his original plan and calls him to go to Macedonia. In other words, they get called from Asia Minor over to modern-day Europe. And I love what Luke writes at the, there in verse 10. He says, And when Paul had seen the vision, immediately we sought to go on into Macedonia, concluding that God had called us to preach the gospel to them. Do you see that? They know that their call is to go and to preach the gospel. It's not to go and to get involved in politics. It's not to go and do some kind of good social program. It's not to go and play it safe, keeping themselves hidden and nicely blended in with the culture. God had called them to preach the gospel. And they did. They end up over in Philippi. They meet a women's Bible study. I love this. Acts 16, verses 14 and 15. One who heard us was a woman named Lydia from the city of Thyatira, a seller of purple goods who was a worshiper of God. The Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul. And after she was baptized in her household as well, she urged us, saying, If you have judged me to be, a, be faithful to the Lord, come to my house and stay. And she prevailed upon us. Do you see that? The Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul. The same sovereign Lord who pursued Paul was pursuing Lydia and drew her to himself. The gospel is transforming people. A church gets planted in Philippi, and persecution ensues. Paul and Silas actually get thrown into jail. But again, the gospel isn't stopped. They start singing hymns in the prison cell, and the jailer gets converted. They're released. It's amazing. Now, if you'd been persecuted and imprisoned, what would you do if you were let go? Would you take it as a sign from God that this mission thing was a closed door? Too much suffering? Obviously not the will of God because we're being persecuted? Thankfully, that's not how Paul thought. And here's where our Thessalonian conversation really begins. Flip in your Bibles to Acts chapter 17. Acts 17 is where we're going to be for the bulk of our time. Acts 17, verses 1 through 3. Now when they had passed through Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica, where there was a synagogue of the Jews. And Paul went in, as was his custom, and on three Sabbath days he reasoned with them from the Scriptures, explaining and proving that it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead, and saying, This Jesus, whom I proclaim to you, is the Christ. All right, here we are. They, they make it to Thessalonica. Well, where and what is that? I'm glad you asked. Here's a map. Thessalonica is a coastal city on the Aegean Sea. And it was one of the largest cities in the Roman world. It was the capital 
in one of the most influential cities in Macedonia. Because it was a port city, it was thriving with commerce. Think of it as a modern-day New York City or Boston. It was a happening place. Spiritually, it was pretty diverse, too. The locals there worshipped the Roman pantheon of gods, including the emperor himself. We'll get to this soon. But the Jews were attracted to this city as well. Eventually, some of the Gentiles or the non-Jewish people were attracted to Judaism and wanted to convert. And these people were known as God-fearers. So they're attending the Jewish synagogues. Now, with all of that in mind, look at what Paul does at the beginning of Acts 17. He goes to the synagogue on three separate Sabbaths, and he reasons with them from the scriptures. This is huge. He, he doesn't just give his opinions. He doesn't even just talk about the scriptures. No, he reasons from the scriptures. If you're new here at Santa Cruz Baptist, this is vital to our philosophy as a church. Our desire week in and week out is to preach and teach from the scriptures. Expositional preaching. My opinions, my hobby horses, my hot takes are of little or no value. But the scriptures, invaluable. They're truth. They're life-giving and profitable for every situation that you face. Look at what Isaiah chapter 55, verses 8 through 11 says. Isaiah 55, 8 through 11. God says, For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. For as the rain and the snow come down from heaven and do not return there, but water the earth, making it bring forth and sprout, giving seed to the sower and bread to the eater. So shall my word be that goes out from my mouth. It shall not return to me empty, but shall accomplish that which I purpose and shall succeed in the thing for which I sent it. God's ways are higher than our ways. His word will come down and produce what it was sent for. It won't return void will accomplish his purposes. It's going to succeed. I believe that with all of my heart. And I hope you do too. Look at what Paul does. He reasons with them from the scriptures. Verse 3. Explaining and proving that it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead. And saying, this Jesus who I proclaim to you is the Christ. He's using the text of Scripture as his starting point. Then he's explaining. He's pointing them to Christ and proclaiming his death and resurrection. He's helping them to read, understand, and apply the Bible for themselves. That's expositional preaching. That's our goal here. And look at the results. Verses 4 and 5. 
back in Acts 17, verses 4 and 5. And some of them were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, as did a great many of the devout Greeks and not a few of the leading women. But the Jews were jealous. And taking some wicked men of the rabble, they formed a mob, set the city in an uproar, and attacked the house of Jason, seeking to bring them out to the crowd. This is what we should expect. But when the gospel is preached, there's typically three responses. And we see them all here. Number one, some will be persuaded. They'll hear the gospel. Repent and believe in Jesus joyfully. Their lives will be forever changed, like Paul's, Silas's, Timothy's, Lydia's, and millions of others. Some will be persuaded. Second, some will be angry. They'll reject the gospel outright. Label Christians as closed-minded, hateful, backwards, and bigoted. Some will be angry. Third, some will elevate anger to persecution. That's what we see here in Acts 17. So, why are these people so upset? And what exactly are they doing here? This is where context is key. Politically, it's important to know that Thessalonica was a free land. But one commentator notes that Thessalonica was a free city in the Roman world. He says, other cities did not have this privilege. In other locations, the Roman Empire had military occupation forces to set up its own government, but not in Thessalonica. The Thessalonians controlled their own affairs and political situations, making them almost democratic, unlike any other city in that region. They had freedom from military occupation, and they could mint their own coins. So with that in mind, look back at Acts 17, verse 5. Taking some wicked men of the rabble, they formed a mob, set the city in an uproar, and attacked the house of Jason, seeking to bring them out to the crowd. That word translated as crowd is the word demos. It's a formal assembly made up of citizens. It was the lowest level of political authority in Thessalonica. In other words, this, this mob is looking for Paul and Timothy and Silas. And they're wanting to bring them out before this citizen assembly, the demos. But they can't find Paul and Timothy and Silas. So what do they do? They drag out Jason and some other Christians. Look at verses 6 and 7. And when they could not find them, they dragged Jason and some of the brothers before the city authorities, shouting, These men who have turned the world upside down have come here also. And Jason has received them. And they are all acting against the decrees of Caesar, saying that there is another king, Jesus. A level above the demos, or the citizen assembly, was the city authorities. And they're known as politarchs. This is key. James Grant comments that these leaders, these politarchs, were responsible for the governing of the city. And if they could not keep everything going smoothly, they would be accountable to the Roman Empire. Okay. 
take that in for a second. You're one of the only cities under Rome that's actually free, not occupied by Roman soldiers. Your role as a city authority, a politarch, your role is to keep it that way. And this group of people shows up and starts shouting that these guys who have turned the world upside down are causing problems. Even more, they're against Caesar, saying that there's another king, Jesus. Remember when I told you that a huge part of this city was pagan and worshipped pagan gods, and that one of those gods was Caesar? Emperor worship was alive and well. See this. If you lived in Thessalonica and you worshipped what they worshipped and you didn't rock the boat, you'd be just fine. But to claim that, that Caesar isn't Lord and Jesus is, that was serious. Friends, no less serious today. If you live in Santa Cruz County and you worship what everyone else worships, the God of money, sex, fame, status, power, if you worship the emperor through putting your trust in politics, you'll be somewhat left alone. You're not a, a problem or a threat to our culture or to Satan for that matter. But the moment that you proclaim that Jesus and not those things is Lord, the moment he gets to call the shots in your life and define truth, the moment that happens, you, like these men, will be turning the world upside down. There's only one king, and his name is Jesus. That's what we believe as Christians. He's Lord. And I'll remind you that prior to going to Thessalonica, Paul and Silas had been imprisoned in Philippi for proclaiming this exact message, that Jesus is Lord. They knew that proclaiming that message was dangerous and would cause problems. I wonder, are we okay with that? So often, Today, as Christians, we seem to be doing our best simply to blend in, do what the culture does, love what the culture loves, just don't rock the boat. In fact, many so-called prosperity gospel preachers will tell you that if you, if you follow Jesus, that you'll never experience persecution at all. But the overwhelming story of Scripture is that to follow Christ, Will means suffering. The gospel through Paul, Silas, and Timothy shows up and it changes this city. It turns the world upside down. Is that the gospel that you believe in, church? A gospel that transforms people and impacts cities. I'm not saying that, that we as Christians go looking for trouble. But if you're actually believing and living out the implications of the gospel, trouble will find you in some way, shape, or form. Does your Christianity rock the boat?
Do those around you even know you're a Christian? And are your primary, primary loyalties in life distinctly different from theirs? That was the situation in Thessalonica. Enough prominent people who were influencing the city as a whole had been transformed by the gospel of Jesus Christ. They were willing to take up their cross and follow Jesus, swimming upstream of the rest of the city. The gospel had transformed a people and impacted a city. Understand this. For those Christians to to claim that Jesus is Lord meant that Caesar wasn't. And it meant potentially some political turmoil, turmoil in this free city. Again, there are those today who simply don't mind your Christianity as long as you'll keep it private in your heads and in your hearts and in your pews. But the moment it spills out into the public square and starts affecting the way you live out there, the world and Satan can't have that. This Jesus who who died on the cross and rose from the grave was challenging the rule and reign of Caesar himself. Your faith as a Christian isn't meant to be private. It wasn't for Paul, Silas, Timothy, or these new converts in Thessalonica. So, what would these politarchs do? Look at verses 8 and 9. And the people in the city authorities, that's the politarchs, city authorities were disturbed when they heard these things. And when they had taken money as security from Jason and the rest, they let them go. So it seems like these politarchs take in Jason and the other Christians. They question them. They take some form of bail with the apparent promise that they'll get Paul and the gang out of there. Verse 10 The brothers immediately sent Paul and Silas away by night to Berea. Okay, let's quickly recap. Paul, Silas, and Timothy are on mission proclaiming the gospel of Jesus to the Jew first and then to the Gentile. Paul and Silas get thrown in jail in Philippi. They get miraculously released. They head on to the hustling, bustling capital of Macedonia. Thessalonica. They preach the gospel. Some Jews and a lot of devout Greeks and not a few of the leading women come to know Christ there. A church comprised of those people is born in Thessalonica. But this fledgling church in a polytheistic Roman world rocks the boat by what they believe and the way that they live. Do you think this is relevant for us today in Santa Cruz County? It is. Because their belief is affecting the city. And as their belief is affecting the city, a borderline riot breaks out. And to calm the storm, Paul and Silas leave the city under the cover of night. They head south to Berea and then to Athens. And we read in 1 Thessalonians 3, 1 through 5. Therefore, when we could bear it no longer, we were willing to be left behind at Athens alone. 
And we sent Timothy, our brother and God's co-worker in the gospel of Christ, to establish and exhort you. Who's the you there? The Thessalonian church. To exhort you in your faith that no one be moved by these afflictions. For you yourselves know that we are destined for this. For when we were with you, we kept telling you beforehand that we were to suffer affliction, just as it has come to pass, and just as you know. For this reason, when I could bear it no longer, I sent to learn about your faith, for fear that somehow the tempter had tempted you, and our labor would be in vain. So a couple of months after their their flight through the night, they send Timothy back in to check on the fledgling church plant. They were genuinely concerned about them. Timothy goes. He spends some time with them. And then he catches back up with Paul and Silas in the city of Corinth. Catches them up to speed. And then the three of them, Paul being the main author, write this letter back to this young church to encourage them to refute some lies that have been told about Paul and Silas to answer some specific doctrinal questions that they have about the end times, and most importantly, to give them hope. That's the conversation that we're entering in this letter. So with the last couple of minutes we have, let's read verse 1 again. 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 1. Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy... To the church of the Thessalonians, in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, grace to you and peace. First, I want to highlight their location and their identity. Location and identity. Paul writes, to the church of the Thessalonians. They're living in in Thessalonica. But... That's not at all what's most important about them, is it? They reside in the city, but they're in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. By the way, when you see in language in Scripture, we're talking about union. We have union with God as Christians. He's reminding this church of who they are. They're in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. It doesn't matter what's going on around them. Suffering, persecution, whatever it is. They're in God. If you're a Christian, do you know that about yourself? You may be in Santa Cruz County geographically, but you're in Christ spiritually. And that's the most important thing about you. When when he, Jesus, when he died on the cross, you were in him. Your sins were nailed to the cross. When he was buried, your old man, your, your sin nature, was buried in him. And when he rose from the grave, defeating sin, Satan, and death, you, Christian, were in him. His righteousness was credited to you, and you were declared justified and given new life in him. This good news transforms you. 
And it's true of you as a Christian, no matter where you are geographically. You can be in Aptos or Albuquerque, but you're in Christ. Then, look at what Paul says at the end of this short greeting. Grace to you and peace. Grace and peace. He's giving them a blessing of grace and peace. Two words that are a result of our union with Christ. First, grace. Often we define grace as unmerited favor. And that's somewhat right. But I'm not sure that that definition goes far enough. Because unmerited favor would suggest that we're starting at zero and being given something that we didn't earn. But the biblical concept of grace is even better than that. Because according to scripture, we're not starting at zero, are we? No. Because of our sin, we rebelled against God. We worshiped the idol of self. We acted according to our own will and actually demerited any favor. We're not starting at zero. So grace isn't just unmerited favor. It's demerited favor. Not only do we not do anything to deserve it, we actually deserve its opposite. We actually deserve God's wrath. But God, in his love and mercy, he gives us grace. He sent his one and only son, Jesus, to live a perfect life and to die in our place. He he rose from the grave three days later, defeating sin and death on our behalf. And when we repent and believe, his righteousness, God's favor, and eternal life are ours. And because of that, we have peace. And it's important to know that the peace here isn't just inner peace or a lack of conflict or tranquility. Peace is the biblical idea of shalom, wholeness, and well-being, both vertically with God and horizontally with one another. Shalom is a reversal of the brokenness and the chaos that sin brought into this world. Because of Christ, we're blessed with grace and peace. Do you know how encouraging that would be for a small band of Christians in a pagan city who are being persecuted for their active faith in Christ Jesus? Do you know how encouraging that is for us in Santa Cruz County in 2023? Christian, it doesn't matter what's going on around us. It doesn't matter if the world's going crazy, and it is. It doesn't matter if the world around us worships the emperor, and it does. It doesn't matter if we experience outright persecution someday, and we might. We can know for certain that because we're in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, that we have grace and peace. The free gift of demerited favor and shalom. Isn't that encouraging? The gospel still transforms people and impacts cities. Amen? Amen. Let's pray.